If you have your Bibles, I do invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. Today's passage concerns a case in which a corrupt state abuses its power and in the end carries out a gross injustice. And today we are looking at an instance in which the apostate administration of the northern kingdom in this case, under the direction of Queen Jezebel, uses its power to legally kill a man in order to steal his inheritance of land. Right away, we can say that um, the idolatry of Ahab and Jezebel um, has consequences. Um, It leads to a certain worldview, And, and in this case, it's a worldview that that says um, uh, there's really not a God that will hold the leaders accountable. Um, Therefore, um, the the king is essentially a law unto himself. And and it's just a reminder to us that sometimes we think of uh, a a certain worldview as being neutral in its orientation. We, We think about that in terms of a secular government, that it somehow sits in a place where it can accommodate all worldviews. But what the scriptures tell us over and over again, that's not the way worldview operates. For instance, if you adopt a secular mindset, for the most part, that is, um, you're operating on the basis that, that there really is no God. What that will allow you to do over time is to begin to adopt a mindset where you're not accountable to any higher law. And it becomes very easy then to become a law unto yourself. Worldview matters. There's no neutral uh, when it comes to worldview. And so you're forced to think through, well, what is the true reality of the world? (laughs) If there is a God, we should adopt that view from the top all the way down. Well, that's one of the things that we will see in this passage. The story is fairly straightforward. Um, Would you stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word? So this is um, chapter 21. Now Naboth, a Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed, and sullen because of what Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? 
Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Would you bow your heads with me? 
living and holy God, be gracious to us now. Penetrate the hardness of our hearts with your word and by your spirit. May your words be like honey upon our tongue and nourishment to our souls for the sake and the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Like the, the previous um, uh, narrative, this one also moves across three acts. The first movement is this act of terrible, uh, of terrible injustice. And it's followed then by the arrival of the prophet Elijah with a message that once again, Baal is not the true God, that Yahweh is the true God and Yahweh sees and Yahweh will judge. And then it leads to this very surprising act in the, last, in the final um, few verses where we see, surprisingly, Ahab's response. And perhaps even equally surprising is God's response to Ahab's. So we begin with this first act. This is the main part of the story. It concerns a terrible injustice, an injustice caused by the state that's assuming this, this mantle of absolute power against a fellow Israelite because he refused to sell his vineyard to the king. The story um, backs up, and, and it gives you a little bit of context. Um, Ahab had built uh, a palace in a neighboring city about 20 miles um, away from uh, the capital, Samaria. Um, archaeology tells us that um, uh, Jezreel, this, this town, this city, was built around the same time as Samaria, and that it was built in a, in a kind of a similar um, uh, uh, setup. It was uh, the same kind of design uh, that was implemented in Samaria was also implemented in Jezreel. Jezreel is believed to have housed a number of soldiers and horses and chariots. The king noticed while at his, you know, his second or third palace uh, in Jezreel, uh, that there was this, this vineyard right next to the palace. And, you know, the more he thought about it, the more he thought, you know, that would be a great location to put in a vegetable garden. And, and you can see him thinking, well, you know, over here I'll put the tomatoes, over here I'll, uh, I'll put the onions, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll plant um, uh, the, the lentils over here and so forth. And, and so he began to dream about walking through this, you know, when he's visiting this uh, palace in Jezreel, he had these nice walks in a vegetable garden. And um, so he goes, he goes to the owner of this vineyard by the name of Naboth. And by all accounts, Ahab is not intending to steal uh, Naboth's land. Um, He goes to uh, the vineyard and he makes a fair offer. Look, and it's more than fair. Naboth, I will give you a vineyard that's even better than this one. It'll have more land and, and um, uh, if you, if you want to just trade. And if that's not good enough, I will pay you, you know, fair value. I will pay what you want, okay? I mean, it looks like Naboth here, economically speaking, you know, this is like a great deal that has just fallen into his lap. But there's a problem. And the problem is that this particular vineyard is part of this ancestral inheritance. This inheritance that was um, allocated 
uh, to the, the families, to these clans, way back in the time of Joshua, um, where the land was allocated and the law stipulated, uh, going back to Moses, the law stipulated that the only way that this land um, uh, could be sold from this ancestral land, because it was the Lord's ultimately, um, was in the case of dire poverty. That would be the only time you could sell. You could lease this land, but you could not, as a faithful, God-fearing um, uh, Israelite, you could not just sell the land. And this is Naboth's um, situation. He realizes, you know, he's not in dire poverty. There's no good reason to sell this land. And being it, and he tells us that Naboth refers to the Lord. He refers to Yahweh. He says, the Lord, Yahweh forbid. That is, God forbids this. King, you got to understand, I'm not trying to be difficult here, but but you know that this is part of this ancestral inheritance. I, I, I follow the law. I follow Yahweh, and I cannot sell. So, so it looks like Naboth is taking a principled and faithful, a believing stand. He's one of, you know, apparently he's one of the 7,000 that God had earlier told Elijah uh, had not bowed the knee uh, to Baal. Well, the result is, is, Ahab semi-accepts this. <laughs> so we're told that he goes away sullen and vexed. Um, there's that word again. He's vexed. And he just, he, he goes to his, his, his room. He just plops on the bed. He's like a petulant child. I'm not going to eat. I'm just so upset. I mean, who's this Naboth that he would say this to the king? And of course, you know, the queen comes and says, whoa, what's wrong? And her husband tells her the situation, and Jezebel is confused by this. She, she's both confused and impatient. Now, why is she confused? Well, she is the daughter of a, a Phoenician king. And the Phoenician kings do not operate the way the, the kings of Israel operate. That is, what Ahab seems to understand, at least up to this point, is that he too has to abide? Even you know, so Ahab's interesting, isn't he? he? He like he doesn't believe. I mean, he sort of believes in Yahweh, um, but he's promoting Baal worship. It's like he's haunted by God, and he knows enough that he's like, oh, I I can't go against God's. You know, there there is this law, and he seems to recognize temporarily at least that he is a king who serves under the law or beneath the law of God. So he can't just steal it. But Jezebel, who's the daughter of a Phoenician king, well, that's not the way the Canaanite or the Phoenician kings operate at all. If a king wants something, the king gets it. Very often, these kings are revered as these kind of, uh, of deities that um, occupy the throne or occupy the palace. So whatever the king wants, the king gets. And the citizens of a land are no more than, you know, his property to do with what he wills, along with all the, the, uh, the, the land. And so Jezebel sets off. Um, uh, she's very shrewd, politically shrewd. And she comes up with a plan by which they can get rid of Naboth. And later we'll learn that getting rid of Naboth includes his son. So in 2 Kings, there's a reference 
to also the blood of his sons. And, um, and so what she does is, is she uh, uh, creates these false witnesses. She, she says, okay, apparently there may have been some kind of uh, pestilence or hardship. And, and so she says, you know what you do? Call for a day of fasting, a day of fasting and worship. And as part of that day, you know, uh, seat Naboth in a place of honor. And apparently Naboth must have been a man of high repute. He had a good reputation. But then sit across from him these two false witnesses, okay? These are um, uh, two witnesses who are, are just going to create and fabricate these charges. And then after they, they accuse Naboth, and, and you need two witnesses because we'll come back to that, um, then it'll be clear that he's guilty. You can take him outside the city and stone him to death, and at which point the land is available. And then Ahab can occupy uh, the vineyard that he wants. Everything works just as the queen orders. And soon Ahab has his prized vineyard. Naboth and his sons are dead. Now, this allows us an opportunity just to to briefly um, talk about due process. Okay, due process. Uh, In this passage, we see the northern kingdom paying lip service to due process and abiding by the requirement that there be at least two credible witnesses, eyewitnesses, to the alleged crime. Um, So due process in general is um, is this idea, it's a principle in law, that every citizen has the right, has certain rights when accused of a crime, and they have rights to be treated fairly and equally, regardless of status, regardless of wealth, regardless of, of who they are, or even what the accusation may be, they have the right um, to be treated fairly and equally. And within the Old Testament law, this principle is embedded um, in this idea of the necessity for more than one and it had to be an eyewitness. It's, this isn't hearsay that is being allowed. It goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. And there we read this. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So God's law required there be due process before someone could be convicted of a crime. And, um, and, and underneath this idea of due process, and you see it here, okay? So due process requires that there be evidence, sufficient evidence. In this case, the, the eyewitness testimony of two credible witnesses. And you'll notice that the eyewitness testimony was, um, it couldn't just be one person. Well, why not? Why is one person's eyewitness testimony not enough? Well, because it creates a he said, she said situation. And, and, and so in the case of a he said, she said, or he said, he said, whatever, however you want to put it, situation, the burden of proof is on the side of, of uh, producing enough evidence to show guilt. Um, so the corollary of this is this, and, and it's 
So our understanding of law is embedded in the Bible. It, it comes right out of the law of Moses. And it's this, that a person is presumed innocent until proven what? Guilty. You're presumed innocent until proven guilty. In other words, just going back to that Deuteronomy passage, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, okay, depending on the situation, you may need a third witness. So in some cases, two aren't enough. But note that it says, um, it's on the basis of these witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. It doesn't say on the basis of two witnesses, they will be you know, uh, shown to be innocent and they'll, they'll be set free. You see, the, the presumption here is that what has to be shown, what, what has to be proven is guilt. And this is significant because in, in the history of the world, even places today, very, it, it's not, it has not been unusual for a situation to be, oh, we heard this accusation brought against you, now prove that you didn't do it. That happens all the time, okay, all the time. And so we are Christians. We are being led and instructed by the word of God. And the word of God is showing us that when we approach these um, issues of justice, there needs to be due process, that a person is to be regarded as innocent until there's been an investigation, until there's been evidence, uh, and a trial, okay? They're innocent until proven guilty. Now, what does that mean? Well, in part, what that means, you know, if you've watched the old Westerns and you had some cow, cowboy in the, the, the town jail because of some violent crime uh, or cattle rustling that he was accused. And what happens in those old Westerns? Well, you have all the, you know, the guys come with the, the, uh, the masks on at night and they've got the, the torches and they've got their guns and they come up to the local sheriff and they say, you know, give us Johnny. <laughs> we know that Johnny did it. Bring him out. Uh, we're going to enact justice. Well, there's not been any, um, uh, there, there has not been any due process. And the sheriff has to say to him, look, um, uh, if, he's, um, if, if the evidence shows he's guilty, he will, he'll pay. But you have to wait. You, you have to wait for uh, due process to be given. And this is part of just the golden rule. That is, if you were the person who's being accused, what you want to ask yourself is, how do I want to be treated? And what you're going to say is, well, I want to be treated fairly. I want my rights as a citizen to be respected and the difficulty here is so often, you know, we see or we hear of some heinous crime and our emotions just take over and we, oh, bring them out. You know, we're part of that, that mob and we're like, bring them out. We're going to, you know, we're, we're going to show him, you know, what's right and, and, and true and good. And, and so we're going to take care of business. That's not biblical justice. And further, when we allow um, the mob to get their way, it's usually not the rights of the rich that are going to be trampled. It's usually the rights of the poor. It's the rights of those who don't have the means to defend themselves. So this is a, a very important principle. And of course, in the passage, this whole principle is just made a travesty, of, of course, 
The story, however, does not end with a simple travesty of justice. It doesn't end with the death of Naboth. Uh, Jezebel informs Ahab that Naboth is dead. And so now Ahab can take possession of the vineyard. And and it's telling. Um, Ahab doesn't ask questions. You know, I mean, if you heard, oh, suddenly I was just talking to him yesterday, you know, a week ago. What happened? Ahab doesn't ask these kinds of questions. What we see in this passage is Jezebel is giving Ahab what is now commonly referred to as plausible deniability. But Ahab knows. There are no questions. Ahab knows what Jezebel has done, and he was with it. He accepted it. He agreed with it, or it would not have taken place. But God is not blind. Uh, He's not powerless like Baal. He's not powerless like the idols that the Israelites are worshiping. God sees and God judges the house of Ahab. While Ahab is on his way to celebrate his newest uh, possession, which he plans to convert into a vegetable garden, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. And God um, uh, tells, gives Elijah a message he is to pass to Ahab. This is what the Lord says, verse 19. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to Ahab, this is what the Lord says, in the place where the dogs licked up, licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Okay. Now, Ahab, again, what about plausible deniability here? (laughs) God just cuts right through all of this this nonsense. And And he tells Ahab, you're the man. You are a thief and you're a murderer. And now you and Jezebel and your whole household are going to pay. Now, this is a repetition of a judgment um, that in some ways has already come. It's made a little more vivid with this whole bit about dogs and, and uh, the birds of the air um, uh, feasting on their, their, their flesh and blood. Unlike Baal, Ahab and Jezebel really don't think Baal cares what they do. They probably don't think he even knows. I mean, they did everything in such a way as to hide uh, the, the, their true uh, actions. Surely they've paid off the false witnesses, so there's, you know, maybe they even tied up some loose ends. We don't know. But they're pretty, you know, they're thinking, they, this was a great crime. Nobody's going to find out about it, except for the one who sees. Except for the one who sees in the darkness, who sees into the human mind and into the human heart, God sees. This is the truth of Job on full display. Job chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. Do you not know this from old of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? That is so true in this situation. Ahab, how long did he get to celebrate his new vineyard, his new land? Not even a day a matter of hours, and then the judgment of God comes and and takes hold. 
And all of this is very interesting um, uh, in, in the sense that th- this is a, a, a king who acts um, uh, in a way that he thinks he's going to get away with, with everything, uh, but he doesn't because the Lord sees. Psalm 94, oh Lord, how, shall, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? This is one of the cries of the psalmist. It just looks like to him that all these corrupt people are in charge and there's nothing that can be done. That's the cry of his Lord. How long, oh Lord, will you allow this injustice to take place all around? And then he goes on to describe the injustice he sees. He says, they pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and they afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner. They murder the fatherless. And they say, here it is, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. But he doesn't end there. And he's comforted, the psalmist in Psalm 94, when he continues in verse 8. Understand, O dullest of the people, Fools, when will you be wise? He, that is God, who planted, who created the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke these individuals who act in corrupt ways? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. God sees what is done in secret. God knows about every injustice It does not escape his sight. And the corollary of this truth that God sees is that God judges. This is Psalm 92. This brought comfort to the psalmist. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this, what he's about to say. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, They are doomed. They are doomed to destruction forever. The foolish can't see this. The wicked don't think about it. But the truth of the matter is this, that they are staring into the the maw of an eternal destiny separated from the living God under his wrath forever. The Bible describes this as hell, as a lake of fire, a place of torment. That's where the, that's what the wicked are staring at. So why then do the people of God get so, so agitated? See, we need to have an eternal perspective when it comes to these matters. The Lord sees and the Lord judges. And it will be an awful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. Now, again, if our passage ended here, we'd be like, wow, that, you know, that's a nice um, piece of history. And it, it all gets wrapped up with a little bow tie on top. But it keeps going. And, and then we have these two twists. The first twist is Ahab's response. Ahab has not responded like this before. We're all prepared for Ahab just to get all angry and and vexed again and and just to, you know, stomp off. But that's not what Ahab does. 
he goes and he puts on, he, he tears his clothes in a sign of penitence and mourning. He puts on, the king puts on sackcloth and he begins fasting. He humbles himself before the Lord. Well, that's surprising. But then what happens next, I think, is even more surprising. God accepts it. Like, Lord, haven't you been paying attention? You can't show mercy to this guy. He's just put his fist in your face over and over and over again. He's gone after your ministers. What are you doing, Lord? The Lord comes to Elijah and says, hey, Elijah, I know you don't want to hear this. I, can, I, I look at Elijah kind of like Jonah the prophet, like, oh, no, no, Lord, no. I did hear a rumor, but please don't let it be true. Hey, Elijah, did you see that the king has humbled himself? I want you to take a message to him. Oh, really, Lord, please? Can it? How about Elisha over here? <laughs> this would be a good job for him. Oh, go to the king. Tell him I've seen his penitence, that he's humbled himself. I'm not taking away the judgment, but I will postpone it. The final judgment won't come upon uh, him right away, but it'll wait at least a generation before it comes. Now, this is, you know, so I'm reading this, and I'm, on the one hand, my heart's like, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm like, Jonah, no, Lord. But then the truth dawns, and it's a very comforting truth, that if God can treat an Ahab, how powerful is this promise that gets repeated throughout the scriptures that God opposes the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. That's such a powerful promise. That, and that's the exact thing, the promise that we see at work in this narrative. And it encourages us to know, no matter how bad we have sinned against the Lord, we've disregarded his laws, we, we've made a hash of things in our life, that the promise is true, that if we just humble ourselves before him, we admit our sins, we confess it to him, that there's always this, this, this promise, and God will lift you up. He will exalt you in due time. Well, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your holy word. And again, Lord, this mercy that you were able to demonstrate to Ahab is a mercy that is available to all of humankind because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, whose sacrifice of himself, whose shed blood allows us this privilege and opportunity to find mercy and to find grace with our creator, our king, and our judge and our God. Lord, may every person here, every person watching, find mercy in Christ. Amen.